between the wisdom passed down by ancient healing traditions, anecdotal experience, and modern clinical trials, one thing is clear. Mushrooms are medicinal powerhouses. And I finally found a brand, a product, a company that I feel really aligns with all of my research and understanding when it comes to the medicinal properties of mushrooms, and that is Alchemy Mushrooms. They grow their mushrooms in California on organic mushroom farms. They keep the whole mushroom in their supplements, and they actually blend mycelium and fruit body in their mushroom powders and capsules to give you the best of both worlds. You can learn more at Alchemy Mushrooms. That's A-L-C-H-E-M-I, alchemymushrooms.com. Use the discount code MUSHROOMHOUR for 20% off your order. Alchemy with an I, mushrooms.com. Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on the Mushroom Hour podcast, we're honored to be joined by Terry Smith, the CEO of Wake Jamaica. Terry's passions lie in making wellness possible for underserved people and communities. When she was a young mother recently arrived in Canada, she completed her studies in literature and social cultural anthropology and developed her expertise in labor market reentry for injured workers and economically disadvantaged adults. Terry returned to Jamaica to care for an elderly relative, and during that time, she and her husband took up a mushroom farm using a unique proprietary lemongrass bamboo substrate. Now, Terry believes in a triple bottom line approach to growing any of her projects. Every community she enters must be better for it financially, socially, and environmentally. I'm so excited to hear about her work in helping rural and underserved communities to find empowerment through mushroom cultivation and all the ways that her company, Wake, is contributing to the democratization of wellness. Terry, thank you so much for joining us on the Mushroom Hour. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, any opportunity to talk about mushroom, I'm kind of addicted to the whole thing. <laughs> I think that's pretty clear when we look at the arc of your life and all the projects that you've started and are ongoing is that you are obsessed with mushrooms. And it is truly, <laughs> truly a privilege to have you with us. And yeah, before we get into all those different projects, as with all of my guests, I am insanely curious, what brought you into the world of fungi? You know, what led to this communion that you now have, this special relationship with mushrooms? You know, I wish it was a very romantic idea, like I had my first mushroom trip and and I uh, saw the light. But I got into mushrooms really because I was working with a group of women and uh, when I returned to Jamaica and we were planting fruit trees. And one day, very you know, matter-of-factly, one of the women said to me, you know, I really like what we're doing, but it takes a long time to turn a fruit tree into money and food. Right. <laughs> and so uh, we need, we, we, are, we are poor women, so we need a better way to earn a living. And I couldn't think of a better way to help them outside of mushroom because I had seen a documentary on a young lady, Cheetah Guevara, an African orphan who at the age of 11 had learned to grow mushrooms. And because she grew mushrooms, she was able to take care of her grandmother, 
her younger sibling, and she could afford to buy her own freedom and not have to marry a 36-year-old man at the age of 11. And she learned to grow mushrooms at 11. And so while in Canada, it was mushroom cultivation was this mysterious technical thing, I kind of got the idea watching the TED Talk and all, I watched everything I could find on Cheeto. I figured if an 11-year-old orphan could learn how to change her life and those of the people around her, then I was, you know, at this point, I was an older 52-year-old woman. I should be able to train the women around me first, train myself, and then train the women around me how to change their world using mushrooms. So it wasn't romantic. It was just practical. Well, you said it wasn't romantic, but that sounds like a vivid story, a huge inspiration from a young woman, and actually sounds very romantic, a very inspiring story to get you started on the path of mushrooms. So yeah, I guess it sounded like when you were in Jamaica, that's when you first got into mushroom cultivation, sharing this with underserved communities. I guess, is that the case? Was that the birth of Wake Jamaica, you know, how did how did this project begin? Wake Wake Jamaica actually my involvement with Wake Jamaica started as a little organization of women called Now, Network of Women for Food Security. That's how I started. I returned to I was raised by a poor grandmother. I think I identified with Chida Cavera and her grandmother because I was one of a number of grandkids that was raised by loving, overworked grandparents who went around the island of Jamaica and collected all of their grandkids like we were, you know, like pets and brought us back to her to her her yard and took care of us. So I have an affinity with poor rural women because I, I, I know what it's like to be one of them. I, I saw the woman that I loved most as a child struggling to, to take care of women that way. And so it was important to me when at the age of 52, I called my grandfather, who at that point was 104. And grandpa had his all his intellect was intact, his ability to read his Bible, his love of learning new songs at 104. And I just had a minor stroke and he recognized my voice as soon as I called. He always calls me Joy. And I called him and I said, you know, this is what's going on. And he said, well, we have bigger things to talk about because I'm 104 and I'm going to live for another year. And none of you children who I raised is here to give me a cup of tea. You know, it's really, it's really bad. That's the big issue. Yeah. Yeah. That's a bigger issue than what you're talking about. So, so are you coming to see me? So I packed up and came to see my granddad thinking I was coming to Jamaica for a week or two. When the two weeks was finished, my grandpa started crying. And if you have a 104-year-old guy crying, you find a way to extend your vacation. (laughs) So, So I ended up staying, and he said he would only live for a year, which he lived for one year and a day. Then I could 
you know, I should do something with my life. I should give at least 10 years to Jamaica because I was born here. And so th that's how I came back. And then the need to improve the health of the women around me, socially, financially, and the environment, which is overworked with chemical and over-reliance on subsistence farming, on Roundup and fertilizer and all of that. So there was a, there was a desperate need to do something because Jamaica in the rural era I am in has an extraordinary amount of lifestyle illness. Blood pressures are through the roof. There is diabetes is through the roof. A lot of families have moved away from the traditional ways of eating and have now moved into um, North American style eating and imported sugars from Asia. So there was, there was just a need to do something and to improve the diet and mushrooms is not just about improving the physical nutrition that my families have access to. It improves their lives financially. And the waste from the mushrooms was also a very good fixative for the soil because I live in a mined out area where bauxite, the Canadian, large Canadian companies like Alkin have actually come to Jamaica and done strip mining for bauxite and have left some really gaping holes in communities. Also, there are no nutrients left in the soil in a lot of ways. So what's not, wasn't killed by the uh, bauxite company has been impacted by the overuse of Roundup because they sell Roundup here in four or five different forms under different names, Roundup, glyphosate, land aid, and it kills everything. Worms are gone. Birds don't come around. The bees, it's affect everything. So I was kind of, I told a dying man that I was going to hang about and <laughs> And so you got to do something. If you're going to hang about for 10 years, you've got to do something. And and there was lots that I could do. So you don't really think about it. You just take the Nike approach and you just do it. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to get stuck in and just do it. And some of those problems you're describing are really endemic to a lot of poor rural subsistence communities really around the world. But I think that Jamaica in particular has seen a fallout from really extreme pressures of colonization. I mean, from the earliest days of colonialism all the way through till today, there's the kind of a unique pressure, I think, in Jamaica. And as an island, there's only a limited space to work with. So I think some of that gets really exacerbated, even though it's something that we in America and the Western world might not think of right away. You know, Jamaica has seen a lot of ill effects from that process. So a really important place to do this kind of work. And when you started out, was there an understanding of mushrooms? You know, <laughs> here in the US, there's cultivation techs and at-home mycologists and all that kind of thing. Was there any kind of community like that? Or in terms of mushroom growing knowledge, where were you starting? Oh, you know why Reggie calls me the mushroom queen? <laughs> it's because when I started, I had to explain what a mushroom was. 
We're starting at square one, truly square one. Nine out of ten people didn't understand any of, of that. I was, however, um, my husband is what I like to believe is a genius. You know, is uh, he is brilliant with his three engineering degrees, his love of learning, and his his attention to detail very quickly. He was my mycologist and just running through the learning curve at, uh, you know, we say in bold speed. So yeah. I, I was really lucky. But we no, we didn't know anything. We, we, we were upper middle class couple from Toronto who ate a lot of mushrooms, loved Tuscany, loves the south of france so we we knew what truffles taste like and how fantastic mushrooms could be and that they were good for us but no we didn't know, know anything half of the time we went to the youtube school university <laughs> you know but we also reached out to the wider mushroom community and just about everybody helped stamets People at Fungi Perfecti helped. We had a lovely, lovely gentleman named Bruno in Toronto who went by the moniker Fungi, and he helped. He even came on a trip to Jamaica and, you know, invested time and some basic equipment. So a lot of people helped. We studied a lot. Uh, took uh, whatever courses we we could because once we started to see just how many benefits there were associated with whatever kind of mushrooms we decided we would grow the mountain of research and information about its benefit was so much that it was like wow, we got to grow this one. And, you know, minimum wage in Jamaica for the week is around, after they take whatever they take out of it, is about $50 US. And I can say, I could sell a pound of mushroom for $25. Oh man, so the economic <laughs> empowerment right off the bat from the first flush of mushrooms. There you go. So if I could get my girls to grow five pounds of mushrooms, they were doing two and a half times the minimum wage. If they could grow 10 pounds of mushroom, we had a lot of hope. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it was not it was not brain science, you know, it was just kind of practical. And then mushrooms that we started with edibles, so it tasted so good. We had a lot of fun mimicking different kinds of meals, like we could use our mushrooms and turn it into jerk chicken and you know, and convince people that, hey, it tastes like meat, but it's better for you. So, but if we we then start looking at turkey tail mushroom, which is a function medicinal. And with the increase of prostate and colon cancer in Jamaica, which comes from the evidence is suggesting that so many farmers have prostate and colon cancer because they carry spray cans on their back with no protective gear 
and the, the liquid Roundup runs right down the middle of their back into their pants. Awful. <laughs> so, you know, there was just so many things like we could have turkey tail that could help the men in the community and other folks. We could have a lion's mane that would go towards balancing things out. And, and because of politics and international politics and pressures on Jamaica, for a long time, two or three generations didn't drink real milk. Because of an agreement with the monetary fund, um, soy powder as a milk replacer was very prominent in the country. And so for a lot of us, when we look at, around at young men a certain age, they look like young girls. Their bodies, you can see the overproduction of estrogen in them. Right. So we have like two or three generations of really feminized boys. And you can pick them out. We're in North America young black men get taller and bigger. In a lot of rural communities, young Jamaican men got smaller and cuter, and they are playing with things like skin bleaching and all of that. So you could see the impact of, of not having great economic policies right there in your community. So I just got really excited about mushrooms. And then psilocybin mushrooms. We live in a culture that doesn't do a lot about mental health. So for me, it helped so much with my mental health that I wanted it to be an option that other people in the rural area could have access to psilocybin. So really, and that's what's unique about your project, you were using mushroom cultivation to empower people in all these different areas. You know, I've seen projects that address food security, address, you know, economic empowerment, but then to add this element of wellness and mushrooms as, as medicine, you know, really intending to have it solve environmental ills and then to bring in the psilocybin element and let communities that have probably experienced more trauma than anyone uh, in the Western world who's using psilocybin to process trauma. You know, these are communities that have so much trauma to process and you're bringing this in as a real tool. Now, in some ways, I mean, you've laid out kind of institutional barriers like the IMF, and that could be podcast series of its own to talk about how the IMF has hurt so many developing countries around the world. So it must have seemed to you then that mushrooms provided, I mean, this ground up, you know, this, this grassroots solution to these problems where you probably won't get that far trying to combat, you know, government policies in the IMF, right? Yeah, well, you're so right, because it's, I've been doing this for 10 years. And we went from where I had to explain what mushroom is to now I see large multinational. I think there's probably 20 new mega millionaire companies who are talking about, I'm in Jamaica doing mushrooms and mushrooms. And then, you know, when you actually dig deep, there is only a couple of companies that really have uh, foundation here. And there's only one company, and that is Wake, that has put money into the infrastructure of the island, that are hiring people where local rural people are working. So, you know, for me, mushroom is just 
it's just a no brainer. It's kind of, you know, I, I don't really understand why everybody doesn't see it, but it also gave me an opportunity to establish my expertise to get the poor women to develop their artisan as a craft because nobody was looking at us. They just thought we were crazy ladies over there playing with mushrooms, you know, so it, there's no money in it. There's, there's nothing going on. Now that everybody's all about mushrooms, people find their way to my door, but uh, they let me alone for a long time. Until you prove that it works and everything else, people won't want to join in. Well, and something else that I know about projects like Wake, where you're really trying to embrace the local community, the local economy, and make it something built out of the fabric of where you're choosing to start your project. What kind of challenges do you experience in trying to translate, you know, kind of traditional cultivation texts uh, that we think of here in the U.S.? to that community. Uh, the thing that stands out in kind of reading about your work is this proprietary blend of substrate. You know, how did you have to adapt cultivation techniques to that area and what has that led to? <laughs> yeah, I love you. Cause you think that we really sat down and figured, <laughs> no, this is what happened. Jamaica, most of Jamaica is covered with limestone. Most of Jamaica are mountainous. They are small bits, you know, like most people think of Jamaica and it's really comical how people see Jamaica. They see it as seasides and beaches and shanty towns and, you know, <laughs> things like that. But my experience of Jamaica, it's all mountains. Mountains, Blue Mountains, John Crow Mountains, Cockpit Country Mountain. We are mountains grown over limestone. So since we overuse these hillsides, we have a lot of erosions. So we grow something called yellow yam. It's not like a sweet potato. We grow sweet potato too, but it's a root crop that is a starchy crop that the slave owners brought to Jamaica when they took us from Africa. And the yams put out vines, like black pepper vines, and they must be wrapped around sticks. And so people would move bamboo trees from one part of the island to the other to make poles for the yams to uh, grow on. But sure. bamboo don't use a lot of good soil. So I inherited a, a, a land and I bought a farm that was no longer good for growing yams or anything because they had used so much fertilizer, so much Roundup that nothing would grow. My peppers died and my ginger died and everything died. So I had this wonderful, rugged piece of land where the hillsides were tearing away. So we planted lemongrass because lemongrass establishes really fast and it's got root systems that holds onto hillsides. And then all the leftover yam sticks turned into bamboo trees. So I had bamboo and I had lemongrass. <laughs> this was not a carefully concocted plan in a boardroom. <laughs> Here is Practical what you had. Necessity is the mother of invention, my grandfather said. Now, 
That's my reality. Also, in North American Europe, people use hardwood sawdust to grow mushrooms. They use hay or straw, and they use bran, whether soya brand or wheat brand or rice bran, but they use those waste, all right? Here's the news flash. If, I, if you live in a mountainous place, it's unlikely you can grow enough hay. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> okay. Very true. All right. We don't have hardwood forests in Jamaica. We have some Caribbean pine. That's not going to do it as a substrate. And we do not grow rice, soya bean, <laughs> or wheat. So the regular three as material for my substrate recipe, we ain't got that. But lemongrass has citronella in it. So that's kind of antifungal. Oh, well, that's the opposite of what we want. Yes. <laughs> so that is where it helps if you're married to a genius because he finds a way to extract the citronella to deal with the lacquer in the bamboo leaf and to make it hospitable for mushrooms. Okay, so it's really, you used what you had, and one of the things you had, one of the resources you had was a husband who's a genius. Yes. So that, with the raw materials you had, made this beautiful substrate blend. Well, I think that's a really inspiring story too, because as you think you know, about a program like this kind of expanding out or, or kind of a decentralized networks of programs like this around the world that maybe some kind of protocol could be developed for. So it's great to know how flexible mushroom cultivation can be basically. So if you try to do this somewhere else, it may be, you know, maybe not the yams, but maybe some other agricultural byproduct that someone can use. Yeah, you know, I don't know if everyone will have your husband there, but but you know, there's something about this that makes it eminently replicable. You're, you're so right because, for instance, a number of the Caribbean islands, there's too much salt. There are small islands in the middle of the ocean, and their their soil is too salty. But they can grow cotton. Mm. Now, the waste from cotton is a fantastic substrate. You yeah. just have to have someone committed enough to hang in there and work with it. Um, mushroom and substrate is a dance. It is, it is a, an intimate dance where you move one way and the mushroom tells you, talks back to you and said, mm, I didn't like that so much. And then you switch a little bit more and, and it talks back to you. And the response is so fast. Where else can you find a crop where you take a waste material like a bamboo leaves or wild grass or cotton hull or bran and within four to six weeks, You've gone from having waste material to having a high value end product that can impact people's life financially, socially, and environmentally. What other thing can you do that? It doesn't require fertilizer. It doesn't, mushroom doesn't require interventions that are chemical made. And you can eat yourself to a better life physically, mentally, 
and financially. I give me a break. It's a magic. It's literally a magic thing. Well, and you've just made a great point about overcoming those hurdles that people in agriculture might have where they're very used to chemical additives. So if you can give them a whole other kind of agriculture that's quick, that teaches them to be perseverant, listen to the crop, that's like a great training ground to then move away from those chemical additives and some of those kind of industrial farming processes and other crop development. Has that happened? Have people that you've seen through your program brought some of these learnings out into the other crops they grow and maybe their understanding of agriculture in general? Well, that's yes, but it's nothing that I've done. I have to keep telling you, people around the world, people with handicaps are using mushrooms to change their fortunes. The little orphans in Africa and other places are learning to grow their own medicine and their own food and using it as a vehicle out of poverty. So one of the projects around the world that inspired me was Cheetah's project to improve uh, soil. We need to make new topsoil. If we contaminated the, the, the topsoil, then making new topsoil is really good. And what is the role of fungi in the, the world? You know, like why did nature make fungi? It is to consume organic matter and return it to the soil. So the waste from your mushrooms can actually just be added back on top of the soil, and in a very quick way, the leftover mycelium will consume that waste and help you to put a layer of topsoil on. But what my ladies have also found out is the waste from the mushroom can be used to feed the animal. Mm. So you use it to feed your goats and sheep and cows. So it continues to give back. So goats, little male goats that feed on on the mycelium, they mature faster, produce better offsprings. This is a resource beyond just food for people. This is an agricultural resource in every way you can imagine for other crops, for animals, for amazing. Yeah. So yes, my w- w- one of the big things that make mushroom different from every other agricultural crop is the landless women and marginalized communities can participate in the formal economy because they do not require land. If we can put together 10 sheets of plywood or cement board or some kind of material that could make a mushroom house, then you can make a little farm in a box because you're multiplying it based on layers. So if it's a 200 square foot of space, floor space, that's not how big that room is, is how many layers of grow bags can you get? And all of us love the ideas about mycelium eating oil spills and going out into space. But really, the biggest benefit that mushrooms, I think, are going to have to humanity as a whole are really what you're talking about, which is giving people who don't have land, who don't have, who are economically disadvantaged, a way to empower themselves with the simplest, quote unquote, organic technology you can imagine. And by doing that, they are 
by using it as an additive to the soil, everything else, they are actually improving the environment at the same time. I mean, this is the biggest impact. When we think about mushrooms saving the world, this is what it's going to look like. That's how it saves the world. It saves the world by saving the individual. It changes. You see, we think about changing the world. And we keep forgetting that each of us are the center of our individual worlds. And if what we do can impact one woman, that one woman impacts one family. That one family is an important part of one community. And that one community then becomes part of impacting my country. My country can then impact my world but it's a practical multiplier. It's a disruptor. Absolutely. And I was going to ask about, now it sounds like for a lot of this project, you're taking what's around you and using it out of necessity. But you know, was there a conscious choice on your part to start this program in training women specifically? And if so, you know, how does empowering women with these tools really uplift the community that much more? Well, it was always, um, I was raised by a poor woman who I saw a lot of women sitting around in circles when I was a child, that my grandfather would plant the gingers and my grandmother and her friends would harvest and peel and wash the gingers, dry it and prepare it for export to England. They would plant cassava and as a group, they would process it. We were coffee farmers as uh, when I was a child. And the coffee picking was not done by the men. It was done by the women. And single families didn't start for countries like Jamaica yesterday. Our men were always our best export or they would get lost even while they were still in, you know, their teenage years, get hurt by whatever, but we are the descendants of slaves, so many of us here. And so relying on our mothers, maybe because our fathers were exported to North America to cut cane or pick apples. So the woman as the cornerstone of the family in Jamaica was just normal. We knew that if you trained a girl if you trained one girl, you were not likely to just impact one girl. She wasn't going to be as transient as one boy. So you train a girl, you train a mother, you train the woman, and you have just empowered the family. So it was it was just really simple economics. I, I could work with the girls. I knew the power of women in poor and rural communities, that they held the families together. Yes, they had the babies, but they also didn't have the luxury of skipping off to another family, going going away somewhere. The baby was left with them. If they migrated, oftentimes they were responsible for either taking the baby with them or giving the baby to their parents like I was when I was a child. My mother migrated to Canada. But uh, my brother and I were left with my grandparents. My aunts went to America, but their children were brought to my grandmother. So while my grandmother raised seven of her own, 
she also raised 13 of somebody else's. So the power and the multiplier of empowering women, you're going to get better bang for your buck. It's so clear and intuitive when you explain it, but what a powerful idea, just that women are the cornerstone. And I think you find this with any project around the world, especially working with rural communities. I think there's an untold story of how women are the driving force that keep the community together. And you know, when I was speaking with a woman, uh, Josephine Nakakande, who runs a project in Uganda, she said, women won't leave their children. So when you empower them and train them, that benefit is going to flow to their children in a beautiful way. So I, yeah, I think you just elucidated that so well and just reminded us all how important that is. Mm-hmm. For you, the women that you've trained, you know, and this can't be a story about every everybody because I know you've worked with a lot of different people, but what are some of the impacts that they've seen in their own lives? And maybe, you know, what have they gone on to do? Maybe the the women who started at the very early days to now. Well, I think the most exciting part of my journey started a year ago when a young, tall, skinny, lanky, wonderful blonde kind of bounced onto my farm in the form of Nick Murray and looking for a partner because he had started WakeNet and Nick wanted to do business in a different way. And he had, I don't know, you know, YouTube is terrible because they they tell your business all over the place. And so because I'd worked with so many funders and foundations, because you learn to be a good beggar when you want to change the world. And Nick had seen uh, some of the things I was doing. And this young man had an idea that I'm going to build a company, but I'm going to build it differently. I like the idea of a triple bottom line. How can we do this together? I will I will find ways of getting the mushrooms out there. Can you find a way of building your network bigger? You know, how do we do this? Instead of working in 10 communities, how about if we aim for a thousand communities across Jamaica and we could have different groups of women growing different types of mushrooms and my team and I will find the market. What does that mean in terms of scaling? Because a project like this, (laughs) you know, you have to start developing formal instructions and protocols to then move it out to those thousand communities. So what has that meant then in the past year, as it sounds like you've transformed from now into wake, you know, what has that meant for you in terms of expanding this out and learning how to repeat the success? Uh, Have you ever had a dream? And in the dream, you know you're dreaming but you can't wake yourself up. (laughs) All time, yes. (laughs) Yes. So I had kind of one of those moments that lasted a while with Nick. And um, at the same time, I was being visited by dozens of deep-pocketed business people from around the world. They came from Belgium and England and Oregon and California, they came in all shapes and sizes and offered all kind of amazing things. But because psilocybin was now going to take over the spot where cannabis had failed, 
And um, I could get a nice big check from a bunch of people, but nobody saw the vision that Wake said, let's do this thing together. So yes, you are right. It means that recruiting of lots of people who are smarter than me, uh, who have more patience than I do, disrupting our life for a year and building a 17,000 square foot GMP standard facility, uh, doing all kinds of amazing applications to government to make sure that we were registered and we can be a formal system. It's just been like I've been on a, a whirlwind. You know that overnight sensation that takes, <laughs> took 10 years of building to <laughs> to bring me Nick. So it's changed for everybody because the partnership between me and now and Wake, which how hearing you say it made me realize how powerful those little words are now, Network of Women and Wake. You know, just there's yeah. just the visuals. The relationship with Wake has been incredible because Nick and his team and my Wake Jamaica team, when we leave a community, you can see things have been disturbed. <laughs> I'm just a natural disruptor. <laughs> you know, see me come and hide. The government has been amazing. I know people complain about their governments all the time, but my Minister of Agriculture is a wonderful, wonderful young man who has jumped in and bought on full-fledged with the project. And so we have government support behind it. A lot of people who have wished us well, but have stood by the side, now see us as a success. And so we're getting a lot of help. A lot of um, support is coming our way. The women now have an opportunity to be part of an industry. So we've gone from being a cottage, a little cottage industry that improved the family's nutritional output and increase their their income. Not anything to laugh at, but all of a sudden you need 150,000 kgs per month. <laughs> that just blows it out the water. So right. now the Jamaican government is moving to put mushroom on their book as an official commodity. So our work has established mushroom as a commodity crop for the island. So everything has changed. You hinted at it before, but this you know, resurgence of psilocybin containing mushrooms and the cultural awareness of America and Canada has created the situation where you do have investors. And from what I've seen from an outsider and, you know, having someone there who's in the middle of this market, you're able to speak to this. It has seemed like kind of Western groups and companies have descended in this kind of colonialism all over again type fashion where they now see that psilocybin mushrooms are legal and they want to come in, grow the mushrooms in this area where it's legal, but bring in labor, bring in ownership from outside the island, and then basically take all that value back out to the other markets. So is that what's happening? And 
have you seen that people have resonated more with your project because you are actually from kind of the grassroots, the soil there in Jamaica? Well, first thing you got to say is wake is not joking. Like this is not a pretend. There's a lot of companies, you know, without calling any names, you could look and they will give you, oh, we are, we're a Jamaican company, head office in Kingston. Now you just have to know mushrooms and you go, where in Kingston are you going to be growing the mushrooms? <laughs> you, know, right. you know, it's kind of like saying, I'm a mushroom company and I have my mushroom farm in the middle of Manhattan. Right. You, know, <laughs> you know, you're not growing any mushroom in Kingston. You have an address at the lawyer's office. And that's, mm. that's what you're doing. I think a lot of people are saying they're growing mushrooms in Jamaica because it's a legal jurisdiction, but they have absolutely positively no plan. They may pretend that the mushrooms they're going to put in their bottles come from Jamaica, but I got to bet it doesn't have anything to do <laughs> with, with made in Jamaica. There's that group. Then there are another group that would like to grow mushrooms in Jamaica, but the challenges around substrate, would they have to import a wheat brand or soy brand? If you have to bring substrate in for growing mushroom, it increases your cost. Yes. That's number one. That same group has to deal with the issue of... Um, the technical know-how on the island. We grow yams and sweet potatoes and bananas. <laughs> We're pretty damn good at sugarcane and rum. But uh, I think most of the artisan growers belong to my network of women. Uh, so they have those challenges. And then there are just the guys who really don't care about quality. And they would kind of like to throw some money at you long enough so that they can get on the stock market. Right, right. <laughs> so there's kind of economic, I don't want to say just vultures, but there are economic vultures out there who are preying on this unique opportunity before it's deregulated fully in the Western world to use Jamaica as kind of a launching point. How has that changed, you know, Jamaicans' perspectives on psilocybin containing mushrooms? I mean, were they a big deal before all this started or were they just legal and, you know, it wasn't really a big issue? How has that dynamic changed? It was never an issue in Jamaica. It was like in the 70s. I'm old enough to be able to tell you what happened in the 70s with the hippies. Okay. In the 70s with the hippies of the, the peace and love movement and you know, the people who would come down and, and like the South Coast, go to Negril, take magic mushroom, walk around with a peace sign. Jamaicans just go, oh, that's just the hippies. We paid no attention to it. Right. Uh, our marijuana has always been associated with our Rastafarian culture. And it's uh, something that for them is religious and it's used to contemplate life. Uh, the magic mushroom was never a big 
thing for us. And because of that, the Jamaican government never got around to putting a law on the book about managing magic mushroom. So it, there was no local law that says, well, if we get catch you with mushroom, you will go away for two years or three years or whatever. Whereas because of our relationship with America, they really influenced the laws around uh, marijuana. But magic mushrooms were never, a, psilocybin was never a problem in Jamaica. So we never had a law around it. Well, and not to take us too far in the political world, but do you think in the future or do you see on the horizon any protectionism by Jamaica's government? I know you said you work with the Department of Agriculture. Do you think they may try to implement some kind of protection to make sure that if this is some kind of emerging industry and Jamaica has people like yourself who are already knowledgeable and ready to provide, and in this case, we're talking about psilocybin containing mushrooms and are able to grow and provide these to emerging markets like the US, like Canada, do you think the government of Jamaica may try to put some kind of protections in place to make sure that the companies that are doing this and getting the benefit are companies like Wake that have those kind of values and are really helping the community? I don't know if I would say they will put protection in place, but my Minister of Agriculture visited on Sunday. And for me, that was a big deal. It's COVID time. It's, um, it's his Sunday. He's, got, he's a young man. I think what the government is committed to do is working with players like Wake. And at the moment, Wake stands out above the rest because Wake over the last year has invested heavily in hiring young people from marginalized communities for the construction of their new plant. They have invested in building relationships with educational institutions. Wake have invested in uh, heavily in clinical trials and attaching technology because even this new farm that we are building, it will it's heavily infused with technology. The grow will be managed by by computer. There will be collection, data collection points all the way along. So to know, can we grow a better mushrooms by adding more moisture or less moisture or more light or so on. So all of the rooms have that kind of sensor continuously collecting data and feeding it back. When Wake does a retreat and have people in immersion, they wear tech. They wear um, biofeedback tech so that we can see how the different strains of mushrooms that we produce, how that plays back with, with what we're doing. So because of that, there is a real knowledge transfer. So mm. our partnership with the college, the, the agricultural university, Wake is committed to putting in a fungi garden in the National Garden Center. They are prepared to work with the school system to teach children how to grow mushrooms and why they should grow mushrooms. So we are partnering with people in England to put in educational programs across the Caribbean. There is a lot that we're doing. So there's a real 
knowledge transfer, real commitment to change. And I worked with a gentleman once who kept saying, you know, it's important to put the work on the ground and let it speak for itself. And I think that's where Wake is different. There's a lot of press release. And sometimes I get a little annoyed because I know the truth of what's happening and I want to, to scream and jump. But the way Wake is doing things is to say, no, let's, let's make sure that we have everything in place and then we can show the receipt. Like it ain't about talking, it's about showing the receipt. And if you wanna know, look at my 10 years of work in the island, come to the farm and see the building, look at the who we are working with, look at the impact that we are making. And I think that in the long run, because we are probably going to be the last person who is looking at the market. We're still a private organization, but we're doing the work. Some people, you know, they've, grown, they've raised an extraordinary amount of money and try driving around Jamaica to see where any of that have been spent. Mm, I mean, a, such a powerful message, especially for this time. And so when we talk about a triple bottom line, economically, environmentally, socially, kind of part of that is integrity and doing what you say you're going to do. And transparency. And, and transparency. And one of the biggest values that comes from developing any kind of production or cultivation is the knowledge that gets absorbed by the people in that area. That's some of the biggest value you can possibly give. And so for me, it sounds like Wake is not only committed to kind of spreading the ideas of mushroom wellness and food security, but also giving that knowledge to the people there in Jamaica, which then empowers them moving forward. Suddenly they have new career opportunities and job opportunities. I mean, the mission of Wake it sounds like it's so holistic, so all-encompassing. But you have to meet our our Canadian CEO. I think you would think he is the coolest person ever. <laughs> he sounds like he is, yeah. Next to my husband, he's pretty cool. But <laughs> Nick is the kind of person who is so bought in to that whole... I think he must have done just the right amount of mushrooms because he he has that that space around him that allows him to be generous of nature to want to see the best in everything to really go out and connect with not just the soil because he loves to walk barefooted which is really funny but he goes out and he connects with the ladies. He drives through the communities and the kids go, Nick, Nick, and they chase him down. He knows what's happening in the lives of the people. It's not a quick fix. And in a lot of ways, sometimes he does things in different orders than textbook would do it. But it's about a marriage between the work I was doing and the vision of a young man. To me, he's smarter than Elon Musk because he's doing the stuff on the ground and changing the world around him. So when you have a, a leader like that, you've got everything in place to make the changes. It's not a theory for him. It's not a press release. It's Nick. When people are doing it for the right reasons and they're really doing it to empower people, it looks different. It feels different. And 
when the leadership is people like yourselves and people like Nick who are really engaged with not just with kind of the European hierarchical money structures, people that are engaged with the people, with the BIPOC community, the indigenous, the black communities there, it looks different and it feels different and it has a higher level of integrity. And that was something I also wanted to mention in this interview is how important is it, do you think, to reach those communities with just this one thing, the understanding of mushroom cultivation, the economic benefit, but also the understanding of wellness, not only what psilocybin mushrooms can do for you, but what medicinal mushrooms can do for you. I mean, do you see this as something that Black and Indigenous and BIPOC communities, you know, can really be empowered by just the understanding of kind of the medicinal aspect of fungi? And how important is that to Wake's mission? I always get, I always think that is a funny question. And I get asked that a lot. And here's why I say that. Poor communities, subsistent communities, Aboriginal, native cultures. We've had to heal ourselves. The use of plant medicine is not new to us. My grandmother had a house full of kids and no money. So she knew that if we got, got the temperature, she had to go outside and cut lemongrass, put it in the pillowcases and put it under the sheets and keep us there to sweat it out. She knew that if we had an upset stomach, that a, a few bamboo leaves and a big pot of lemongrass would help with our digestive system. She knew the which bush to uh, feed us because we were low on iron. Asian cultures do that all the time. Aboriginal cultures do that. They know what you're supposed to. Every family in my community has a bottle somewhere in the house that has rum in it, marijuana in it, and now they have a little bit of magic mushroom in it too. So, <laughs> so the, the embracing of mushroom when it, it's explained to people that I work with is a no-brainer. They just believe that there are no side effects. That, you know, it's not a pill that was made. So poor cultures embrace it because it's not new. Relying on yourself, eating yourself better, drinking yourself to better health. That's why most of the time they know, I don't want to drink anything with milk right now because I have an upset stomach. I need a little bit of mint tea. I need to boil some orange leaf tea. I need to eat a little bit of mushroom. Mushroom fungi culture is being embraced across my island. And I think it will be embraced in most places. You know, my people tell me that when the Bible talked about waking up in the morning and the ground was covered with manna, that's another word for mushrooms. It is a God-given gift. Fungi is just that special. Yes. And that is, I think, the thing I needed to hear to educate me is you're not at wake does not need to tell people in rural underserved communities, BIPOC communities about plant medicine. They already know about plant medicine. There are traditions. <laughs> if anything, you're making it available and you're giving them an option that is kind of made with integrity, sourced, grown with integrity. So you're giving them a good option to kind of already bring into this area that they understand very well. And if you listen to them, 
they will tell you that that gava plant over there, that will help you sleep better. <laughs> and if you mix the gava with a little bit of uh, ginger and you throw in a little bit of lemongrass, that will be good for this other thing. They will tell you about a little bit of ipogaine and all kind of psychedelic stuff that will work just as well for you. I think what Wake is doing for a lot of these community is listening and hearing from the elders and allowing them to have voice. And now they can believe, well, you see, I told you young people that there were solutions. So my elders are feeling listened to because the stuff we know, Wake is saying, hey, there's some value in that. Well, and I'm sure everyone listening, like me, wants to learn more about the organization. So where can people find out more about Wake and find Wake's products? And if you want to give us some examples, I'm going to guess there are not psilocybin products available here in the United States or Canada yet. Uh, well, you know, I have to let you know that Wake is always trying to make everybody have access to our products, both functional. And that's the other thing about what has happened with Wake is that we're not just about psilocybin. We're about gourmet edible medicinals because some of our medicinals are also delicious gourmet mushrooms like lion's mane that taste like amazing crab or lobster meat and our oyster mushrooms. So um, you can always find out, you know, just Google Wake Clinics, Google me. <laughs> We're so easy to find. So check us out at wake.net and there's always an opportunity to save or to be part of what we're doing. I am hoping that we will be in so far along in our construction by midsummer that people can come along and be part of our community. Well, and I really encourage people to go to the website, learn more about the mission and also support you guys, because as you've heard from this interview, there is the best intentions put into this project. This is the kind of thing where mushrooms are actually helping communities and saving the world. So please go visit Wake. We'll have the links to wake.net. And as a question about the future that I'm thinking of, do you see this model of what you're doing at Wake in Jamaica as something that could go out into rural communities across the world? I mean, is it already happening? Does it take someone special like Nick to get involved? I guess, how can we see more of the Wake projects around the world? Because there's so many places that could just get such empowerment from this. Oh, that that's a really wonderful question. Yes, it it's, takes a lot of special people, but it takes special people like Reggie, who is passionate about things to share. It takes people like you, and it takes it. Yes, it takes crazy ladies who will put on her grandfather's felt hat and push down the doors. It takes uh, a lot of different kind of people, but there is a need for this kind of project around the world. But I have to keep saying, I didn't invent this. A little, an 11 year old African girl named Cheetah Kavira 
said, I learned to grow mushrooms and it changed my life. It empowered me to take care of my grandmother when my mom and dad died. It prevented me from having to marry a 36-year-old man and it helped me send other children to school. So it takes the Cheetah Caveras and it takes the Terry Smith and it takes the Nick and in a world where we're blowing each other up because of our skin color, in a world where so much is changing, then I would think it's awesome cool that in that world there's you and there's Nick and there's me and there's Reggie and there's Cheetah Cavera and people who say, how can I grow my own medicine? How can I expand love? How can I do things just a little different? Eh, it's going to take all of us, but that's all right. You're here. You got to do something. We're all here and we all got to do something. And I think it's just a resounding message of hope that you just laid out. And I know for a lot of people that do get frustrated with governments and giant corporations, huge systems of control that we feel like we can't change. This is an example where, you know, there are tools, technologies that if you commit yourself to, you can start change from the ground up, even if it doesn't feel like this will change everything. I think your project is proof that it can have, it may take 10 years of working and toiling, but it will make a big change. It's not always apparent right at the start. And I think mushrooms always seem to illustrate that so beautifully. Well, Terry, before you leave us, I will ask you three questions that I like to ask all my guests. All right. I have a feeling you're going to have some fantastic answers for us. <laughs> and the first one is a mushroom or a fungus that you love and why. And it doesn't have to be a favorite or it could be one you love to look at or smell or eat, but just a mushroom you love and why. I have a love-hate relationship with oyster mushrooms. And I love them because they're they're everywhere in every climate. They're in the Middle East, they're in Saudi Arabia, they're in 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 the north, in, in cold places, they're in Jamaica, they're everywhere. I hate them because it almost killed me. I, I, I got sick from a spore shower that filled my lungs with uh, fluid and sent me into ICU. So, oh. so that's the power of, of oyster mushroom. And that I have to come back and tell you all about that one. So that's my that's my mushroom. I'm also particular about um, Jedi, of psilocybin that has a really, really high active ingredient content. It's like seven, eight percent. <laughs> And it's called Jedi. Yeah. Talk to Reggie next time about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I I have a lot to learn. And what a story about oyster. I mean, everyone knows oyster mushrooms, but we never think of them as deadly. And that's definitely something that I've had people encourage me to explore is the effects of spores and the dangers of working with tons of mushrooms in cultivation settings mm -hmm. as you can get spore lungs and different things. So, Wow. Yeah. Of course, I knew it was going to be a fantastic answer for a mushroom we all know and love. Um, and then a broader question, but what has this relationship that you've developed? And obviously, you developed an intimate relationship with fungi, you know, later in life. It wasn't something you were kind of born into. So what has this relationship you've developed? What has that given to you? You know, what has that 
brought into your life. And that could be any angle, spiritual, you know, whatever it is, what has that relationship brought to your life? It's brought focus. Um, my relationship with fungi has brought a unique focus to my life. My ep- episode with a spore shower, being told that you have half an hour to live really sharpens your your senses. And you know, it's really amazing because I I got I got released from ICU and I went straight back to mushrooms. <laughs> so, oh my god! So at at my age, I you know your birth certificate says you're sixty three, but you still feel twenty two, and <laughs> uh, and mushroom focused my attention that it's later than you think, but you still have a lot more time than you than you think. So um, it gave me focus to say, I I may just want to do some legacy stuff. And so for me, working with fungus is the pathway to creating something to leave behind. Something that I think a lot of people can relate to, but something I never thought of and an answer (laughs) I've never gotten for that question. So I love that, a focus, a clarity. And then the last question is a Again, a big question, and we've kind of touched on this throughout the interview, but as our society becomes more familiar with mushrooms, we integrate fungi more into our lives and all these different aspects, kind of what are the highest aspirations or your hopes for how things will change for the better? Maybe in the next 10, 20, maybe even 50 years, you know, how do you see fungi changing human society for the better? That's a good one. It's really a good one. I dream of a world where everyone has had a trip. Everyone has had a trip and you you inherit that wonderful thing that fungi gives to you after a trip, which is that space. That space to just take two extra breaths before you speak something terrible, before you do something to yourself or those around you, before you go with a negative. I learned from mushrooms to just take a breath. And I think as more people, and because of my work, I get to see politicians who want to go on a trip. I get to see business leaders who are taking trips. I get to see all kinds of people taking trips and they're never the same when they come back. And so I think as it become as acceptable in society to microdose or macrodose as it is to sit around and have a intellectual conversation about the kind of wines you like, I think if we get to a world where we could all sit down and say, but you know, I do prefer my penis envy more than I prefer my Jedi versus, you know, in a world where I take a little golden teacher for my migraine instead of some godforsaken pharmaceutical, I think we will have not maybe everybody but at some corners of the world where we'll be nicer, we'll be calmer, and we'll give each other the space to be graceful when we make mistakes. A utopian vision. 
to say the least, when politicians could sit around maybe and have those kind of conversations. And, you know, it's something I always give the caveat with this podcast, and I know your work isn't strictly psychedelic, but it's clearly undeniable the power that psilocybin-containing mushrooms have on a human being and their consciousness. And I think as we develop our relationship to be more and more positive with these substances, learn how to use them responsibly, learn how to do it in a ritual setting, you know, as all of that continues, I think a lot of us see the vision you just laid out. And so I'm really happy that you see that as well. I think you're someone who's really bringing it into being. So not only does Terry see that vision, she's doing her part to, to make that happen. And it's really inspiring. And, and it's not that far-fetched because there was a time when having a drink was illegal. And now we sit around as dignified folks and we say, well, you know, this Cabernet, it has a little bit of a bite and there's essence of tobacco and chocolate. And we talk about alcohol in glowing, amazing terms, and we can be all intellectual about it. But there will be a day when our children, they will be able to talk about what we are just dreaming about. And I can give all the caveats I want, but for anyone who's taken psilocybin-containing mushrooms, they know that it takes one time, it has an indelible effect, and changes your relationship with the world. It's undeniable, and I think we're well on our way to a positive relationship with those beautiful, beautiful mushroom messengers. Well, Terry, thank you so much for coming on the show and really sharing so much of your story. You've got so many more stories to tell. Uh, so I'm going to go listen to every interview you've ever done because you're just <laughs> a fantastic speaker. And um, yes, again, I really encourage people to support you. I really appreciate your time. It's been a joy to get the chance to speak with you. From my heart to yours, let's hold hands into the future. You'll be all right.